look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. It was a busy, but maybe not as busy as you'd have thought, week eight trading deadline situation in the NFL. So we're going to go over some of that in a couple of minutes with Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk. And later in the podcast, we are going to talk to Andy Benoit, my former compatriot at the MMQB and Sports Illustrated. He and I are going to review the first half of the season, and we're going to talk about whether the 49ers are really a highly contending team. And I think they are. I think he does too. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. You know, but first, let's just go over the things in the trading deadline, many of which didn't happen that we thought would happen. But also, a couple of things that did happen. And, you know, first of all, I... I do want to just sort of emphasize what has been different about the NFL in this season and in the last one, two, three years uh, versus in the distant past. And I've written about this a couple of times in the last two weeks, but the reason that in 2019 there ended up being 61 trades in the calendar year versus 39 trades in 2009. I mean, the biggest reason why is that I believe that general managers in the NFL and coaches in the NFL, like Bill Belichick, who have the ability to make trades with their teams, they're basically saying, hey, listen, we're not as worried about future draft choices as our you know, ancestors were, basically. That is the, that's the, the, the real deal. And the Patriots, for instance, who on Monday uh, figured out a way that they were going to trade for Mohamed Sanu, uh, you know, entering week seven, and they were going to have Mohamed Sanu on their team, the wide receiver from the Atlanta Falcons. They overpaid for him, and they know they did. They paid a second-round draft choice for Mohamed Sanu, And, you know, the reason they did is that they needed him. And Bill Belichick feels, if I need a low two at some point in the next couple of years, I'll figure out how to get it. But right now, it is important, borderline crucial, that I get Mohamed Sanu. And that's one of the reasons they went out and got him. But let's let's go to the more present and why things didn't happen this year and why they did happen. Let's just go over a couple of the trades this week that did happen. Leonard Williams uh, for very little, you know, the former high first-round pick of the New York Jets, the defensive lineman, to the New York Giants. And basically the reason that this happened is that the Jets knew they weren't going to re-sign him, 
And the Giants look at this probably in a faulty way as saying, we have an opportunity to get a guy who everybody thought three years ago was, you know, a top five, six, seven pick in the NFL. And he's played well. He hasn't played great. But they thought, let's get a look at him in the last half of this season. And if we like him, we'll go after him aggressively in free agency. I like the Jets move here because they weren't going to re-sign him. And I'm not sure the Giants will either. Um, and, and last week, Michael Bennett goes to the Dallas Cowboys from the New England Patriots, you know, for, for peanuts. And, you know, essentially, Michael Bennett can be a very effective uh, nickel pass rush guy for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I still think he's got eight sacks in him, you know, for the rest of the year, maybe maybe seven sacks in him for the rest of the year if he is put in position with a good defense and a good defensive front to do it he had worn out his welcome and burned his bridges with the patriots he's an individual the patriots do not like individuals emmanuel sanders goes to the 49ers we've discussed that a bit you know i think it's a good signing for uh you know for the 49ers but it's not a signing that's going to get him over the top. I like it, uh, and it bolsters a weak position for them, and that's all it does in my opinion. So let's talk about a few of the things that happened on the trading deadline day and in sort of the last 48 hours. I'm recording this 9 o'clock on Tuesday night just before we get to Mike Florio and Andy Benoit. You know, Trent Williams, the left tackle of Washington, ended up ending his holdout. He is going to report to Washington, and what he's going to try to do is stay in Washington and claim that this is going to be a year that he should have credited to his contract. Um, he does not like playing in Washington. He wants out. I do not think this is the kind of player you should build. You should be building your team around. And what Washington uh, czar Bruce Allen should have done is traded him to Houston for a significant uh, 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 bounty in August or early September. He chose not to do it. So now he couldn't do it now. And in my opinion, is going to have to let him go in the offseason. And... I just view this as Daniel Snyder, Bruce Allen, basically being way behind the times in the NFL. You have to view what you're doing as an organization and what you're doing as a team and say, hey, listen, it's not working. Whatever happened, this isn't working with Trent Williams. We're going to let him go. They should have let him go on Labor Day. They didn't. I don't care what happens with Trent Williams. This is a lost opportunity, and in my opinion, a stupid opportunity uh, lost uh, with Washington, even though they have Trent Williams back. They're going to get a bitter player back in their locker room this week, and the season is already lost. Who cares if you get Trent Williams back? It is a useless uh, piece of capital that Washington has reacquired. Uh, the New York Jets listened to offers and did not get uh, Jamal Adams traded. 
I don't think they wanted to trade Jamal Adams, but I'm going to talk about this with Mike Florio in a few minutes. But in my opinion, I am just sick of the New York Jets taking their assets and trading them for the future. When are they going to sit there and say, hey, listen, this is a good player. Let's keep him. Let's make him happy. Let's try to win. The New York Jets basically, aside from Sam Darnold, who I think is good, but I'm not positive, the New York Jets are an expansion team. That's what they are. They stink. They stink out loud. And they need right now to basically hand the reins to Joe Douglas and say, Joe Douglas, please take us out of the wilderness. Please take us off the ridiculing back pages of the New York Daily News and the New York Post. Um, let us go to the Cleveland Browns. So the Cleveland Browns run, wanted Trent Williams, and somehow, someway, they couldn't get him from Washington. Uh, we'll find out what exactly they offered at their peak. I believe they must have offered a first-round pick. Maybe they didn't, and if they didn't, then it probably really was not good enough. But as I said earlier, Washington blew this by not trading him to Houston on Labor Day weekend. You saw what Houston traded to get Laramie Tunsil. They would have traded more than a one to get Trent Williams. This is a lost opportunity for both Cleveland and for Washington. Denver doesn't trade Chris Harris Jr., the cornerback, the best available DB on the market. Um, I get this. What this means is that nobody out there was willing to offer a two, a two for Chris Harris. Um, it's probably smart to not offer a two for an older corner. All I know is for the next year, year and a half, this is a very good football player. Whatever that's worth, you decide. But in my opinion, if you're Philadelphia picking low in the second round, if I find out that the Eagles offered only a two for Chris Harris Jr. and Denver didn't accept it, that's on Denver. That's John Elway's fault. We'll see in the coming days. But if Philadelphia did offer a two and didn't get him, I think that's Denver's fault. So I think overall, you look at the trading deadline, a lot of things happened this year. Just nothing happened on Tuesday. And uh, it's just... It's a very, very interesting time in the NFL. A lot of desperate teams trying to win, but just not trying hard enough right now. Now, let's go, and we're going to have a good debate. Mike Florio and I, I know exactly how he feels about what the Jets have done. We'll see if they're right. We'll see if they're wrong. But now, let's go to Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk. So, Mike... I mean, I ran over all of the things that didn't happen, you know, in what was supposed to be a big trading deadline day. But there's one that really interests me, and that is Jamal Adams, the safety of the New York Jets. He is a top five safety in the NFL. So the thing I really want to focus on is, were the Jets really trying to trade him, and did it ever get serious? And why in the world would you try, if so, to trade one of the best safeties in football? Well, remember earlier this year, Peter, after the Monday night game between the Browns and the Jets, Jamal Adams 
was salty. He was upset. He did the thing that the kids do where they unfollow people on social media to send a message. They jammed the toothpaste back in the tube. The reality was he was yanked from that game because he did something he shouldn't have done by way of blowing an assignment or something like that. So that has been percolating. You throw on top of it the constant losses. They're now 10 and 29 since he joined the team in 2017. He was despondent after the most recent loss on Sunday to the Jaguars. And it had to be real because I see multiple reports that the Cowboys offered a 2020 first-round pick. The Cowboys on their own Twitter page and website have posted an article confirming they were interested in Jamal Adams, which may be a tampering violation, but that's a different issue altogether. But if a first-round pick was on the table, they were close. The Jets just didn't get what they wanted. The reports were a first-round pick and two second-round picks. The Cowboys weren't willing to do it. It sure feels like, though, just like with Trent Williams in Washington, this is something that's going to be revisited after the season, and I can't imagine that the Jets won't at least reconsider trying to move him once the window opens again in March. Why would you trade or even consider trading a guy who is a cheerleader, a total cheerleader, for the New York Jets, and who is clearly a great football player. This should be the guy on defense, Jamal Adams on offense, Sam Darnold. Tell me, explain to me. I must be an absolute dolt because I do not understand why you would even consider trading this guy. Well, the bottom line is there's a new coach and a new general manager since Jamal Adams arrived. And one thing we've learned about the Jets the past couple of weeks, given the way they handle the Coleccio Semele case, they do not go out and spread their word and get their version of reality out there, especially not publicly. And you never know what it is that causes a team to consider making a move for a guy like that. What was said, what was done, what the evaluation of the guy's play is. And if they can get a big haul in return for him, and look, a one and two twos would have been a heck of a return for Jamal Adams. I disagree. Uh, you have to at least consider it. I would consider it, but I would disagree, and I'll tell you why. Because the New York Jets are very good at acquiring draft picks. They suck at using draft picks. And this guy and maybe Sam Darnold were the only two guys I've seen in the last six, seven, eight years of the high picks who are really good players. Mike, at some point, you've got to start saying we are going to reward and keep our good players. I just, I have been like seething about this ever since I heard they were thinking about this. And again, and again look, if you're offered two picks in the top 20 for Jamal Adams, okay, I'll think about it. But quite honestly, a one and two twos, no. I'm not thinking about it. I don't care how good Joe Douglas is. Well, I don't think the sins of past Jets regimes necessarily stick to Joe Douglas and Adam Gase. And look, the bottom line is this. If Khalil Mack gets traded, if Jalen Ramsey gets traded, anybody other than Patrick Mahomes can get traded. The question becomes, how does the team value the guy? And they're not going to tell the world. They could be wrong. They could be subjectively erroneous in their assessment of Jamal Adams. But the new regime has been there long enough to see him, to interact with him, to work with him, to watch him practice, to watch him in meetings, to watch him in games, to watch his film, to determine whether and to what extent he's properly executing his assignments. And they can come up with their own judgment as to whether or not this is a guy they want to keep around. And if they can get the kind of return 
that they are looking for, and they'll at least get a first-round pick in the offseason, presumably, for Jamal Adams, then that's a decision that they make and they make alone. And I, look, they could ultimately be wrong, but they're in a better position than anyone else to make that decision. Yeah, I'm not trusting Adam Gase as far as I can throw him. A guy who cannot develop a quarterback and now is not looking good with Sam Darnold. I'm sorry. I like Adam Gase as a Whoa, person. Whoa, what, what quarterback, quarterback hasn't he developed? He is horrible. What do you mean? What, he took okay, Tim Tebow. He, he turned four and a half Tim years, Tebow, three Peyton Manning, Jay Cutler. Yeah. Peyton Manning, Peyton Jay Manning, Cutler, Ryan Tannehill. He developed Peyton well, Manning? Stop it. I'm just – just stop. No, no, I'm talking. I'm, I'm running. Developed. I'm running. Come Peter, on. I'm running through his quarterback resume: Tim Tebow, Peyton Manning, Jay Cutler, Ryan Tannehill. I mean, but for Calais Campbell hitting Ryan Tannehill in the kneecap and partially tearing his ACL and 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 ending his season Mike, prematurely saying, in 2016. I understand. I understand. You, at some point, at some point, you've got to develop one of these guys. You do. Who is he developed? He hasn't done it with anybody yet, and I give him a pass on all the injuries with Ryan Tannehill. Okay, I do, and and I think he's got an asker, asterisk on his Jets' reign, I on his Dolphins' reign. But at some point, the excuses have to stop. That's all. I do not trust he's Adam Gase if he says if he says let's trade player X, and I don't know that he had well, anything to do anything. I don't know that. But I just don't trust him yet. Can he please prove it yet that he can do this? Peter, he's never drafted a quarterback, though. When he went to Miami, Tannehill was there. When he went to New York, Darnold was there. And I'm not saying that he's going to throw Darnold overboard. But my point is, it's hard to say to a guy, go develop this quarterback, if that's not necessarily the guy you would have selected. Then why do you draft a guy if all you're going to do is make excuses? He's 5-15 and 15 in his last 20 games. Look, Mike enough about Gates. The last thing I will ask you, because I know you got to go, what is the thing that surprised you most about, about, you know, the lack of trades at the trading deadline? Yeah, I thought that some of these guys where we just knew that their teams were sellers and they just have the guy for the rest of the year, why don't you get what you can and move on? Why don't you move Chris Harris Jr.? Why don't you move Trent Williams? Why don't you engage, you know, the, the OJ, now OJ Howard still got years left on his contract, but he's clearly fallen out of favor in Tampa Bay. I just think that nobody wants to get criticized for doing a bad deal, so everybody just decided to stand pat and they couldn't get the deals done. The two circles of the Venn diagram weren't able to come together for any of these deals that we just thought were going to get worked out. The Trent Williams non-trade will be the one that will stick with Daniel Snyder and Bruce Allen forever. Forever. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen not happen in my 35 years covering the NFL. But, Mike, I know you got to go. I really appreciate you taking the time. We'll talk this week. All right, Peter. See you, buddy. My thanks to Mike Florio for taking the time and for also taking my slings and arrows. It's a good job by Florio. So we've got some really cool stuff on the NBC podcast family and in the NBC family all together. Mike Tirico has had a great week. Not a good week, but a great week. He's got Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers is very, very good and very illuminating, talking about being the old man on his team, talking about his much-discussed, the real truth 
about his relationship with Matt LaFleur, his new head coach. And also, why a scotch is good after a win and why it's also very good after a loss. You're going to enjoy that. He's also going to have a really interesting podcast conversation uh, with Lamar Jackson, the quarterback uh, in Baltimore. Great game, by the way. Not just to blow our horn at NBC, but you're going to hear a, you're going to watch a great game Sunday night. New England playing for the first time since 2013 in Baltimore at the Ravens. Cool game. Tarico and Lamar Jackson, that's going to be cool too. Both of those interviews will be on the NBC Sports YouTube channel. That is just past 1 million subscribers. And really, I, I put my own contribution to that at about 999,000. But anyway, that's it. the NBC Sports YouTube channel. Uh, please go there, subscribe, and look at those interviews. They're very, very cool uh, with uh, Mike Tirico, Aaron Rodgers, and Lamar Jackson. Now, let's go to my former compatriot at the MMQB and Sports Illustrated. Here is Andy Benoit talking about the first half of this NFL season. So happy to be joined by my former colleague, Andy Benoit, uh, who I worked with for five years at Sports Illustrated and the MMQB, uh, one of my favorite people in the business. Andy, thanks for joining me to help me make sense of the NFL at the midpoint. Yeah, this is fun. I appreciate you, Peter. I'm glad we're doing this. So, Andy, I, I think people would love to know, first of all, a little bit about about you, just so that we we sort of establish who you are for those who don't know you. And I wonder if you could just give me, uh, and for those, too, who admire your work, how did you get into this? What is your, just tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, sure. I uh, I grew up as a, a huge NFL fan, and I would write NFL preview magazines or little booklets every year as a summer hobby, and that developed pretty well. And then my last year of high school became a published book, and that's kind of how my career was started. And I did that for a little while. And Peter, I'd say the real game changer though came in two thousand. Eight, oh eight, yeah, it's the year that Tom Brady was hurt. I went to NFL Films. Ron Jaworski invited me into his office just to hang out. He'd gotten, I'd sent him my book, and he was impressed. And I kind of thought I'd go in there making them a little bit impressed with how much I knew. I was in college as a junior in college. And Peter, the second I walked into that office, it was Greg Cosell, Matt Millen, Charlie Casserly, Ron Jaworski, a bunch of former college players who were now working there with them. I realized I was so far and away the dumbest person in that room that I had absolutely no right to open my mouth for the entire day. And fortunately, I did not. And I just sat there watching these guys watch coaches film because I, I learned all at once there's a whole world to football that I had no idea existed. And a lot of the stuff I've been writing I'm going to have to go in a different direction now. So I feel like I've kind of really been doing this since 2008, not 2000, whatever, when I was a kid. Um, and, and the more I've watched film, the more I've gotten to know coaches and the more I've enjoyed the process. 
So to familiarize you a little bit with sort of, or familiarize people with you a little bit and, and your, and your expertise, you were working for me at the MMQB and, and, and getting an expanded role with Sports Illustrated. When you wrote a story about Sean McVay, can you please explain the, the, the roots of that story, how it came to be, and what resulted from it? Yeah, sure. Well, Sean McVay, for one, has been really good to me, and, and I, I had spent a lot of time watching film and, and watching football with him. And, and that's part of the reason I knew so much about what he was doing as a coach. And I, I also learned how good he was because he was the guy for a while there. There were a few months in there where he was primarily the one teaching me. So I learned a lot about his offense, a lot about how he thinks about the game and communicates it. And there was such a positive nature to him. It, he had such a high standard and he communicated it so positively and the more I got to know him, the more impressed I was. And so I was planning on writing a story about him in 2015, and it didn't come together for a variety of reasons. I went actually out to D.C., and I interviewed him, and we spent a, a, quite a bit of time together. But the story didn't come together until the next year. And by that next year, he had started calling the plays in D.C. in 2015, and, the, and Washington had looked very good offensively. And I had talked to a lot of Redskins players, uh, Deshaun Jackson, who isn't known for talking to the media, Kirk Cousins, who is known, but both of those guys were wonderful. Everybody in Washington spoke over the top euphorically about Sean McVay and how good he was. So I, I realized these guys are seeing the same thing I am, and these guys see it a hundred times better because they're actual football people that play football. So um, I, I told Sean, I just want to give you a heads up when this story comes out. This is August of 2016 now. Uh, I'm going to say that you're the best head coaching candidate out there on the market. Even though you're not really a candidate, I'm going to say you're the best head coach available out there uh, in all of football, regardless of your age. And um, I think that helped him a decent amount. I think that got him on the radar a little bit. And I was probably just a little bit ahead of whoever was next because it, it was by then, I think it was getting close to impossible to not see how special he was as a coach. Well, I agree, but it seems so preposterous. And I'll never forget when you sold me on writing this story. My first thought was, I think there's a chance Andy is out of his mind writing about a 30 year old coach and saying he's the best candidate uh, right now to be the next great head coach in the NFL. And my other thought was, I need to trust him because this is what he does. And he talks to all these coaches. He talks to people in the NFL. So I almost, Andy, and I knew who Sean McVay was, but I didn't know him at all. I just shrugged my shoulders and said, okay, well, let's see what happens. And then, so you wrote about this 30-year-old guy and I just thought it was a really, really interesting kind of reaction to the story. And then basically the Rams used that story, didn't they, later in the year after they ended up firing Jeff Fisher? I've heard that they did. I heard that they did see the story, and I don't know what all that, that did, if anything. I really think, Peter, that, that guys like Sean McVay, it's just a matter of time with them. And I, I've probably met 
I've a couple hundred coaches by now, and there are some that, I, that you really like right away. You can just tell they're they're different guys. I've never seen anyone still quite like Sean, where there's such a no doubt feeling about. It. I, I told someone close to me before that story came out that even even though I did not write at the time, I had not written much about coaches in the NFL. I told this person that I've never been more confident in any story I've ever done in my entire life. I think this guy's a sure thing. He is such a unique and special coach. And it was really cool to, because to, I, I knew him when he was a tight ends coach. So we've kind of not come up together, but, you know, we've, our careers have been parallel paths a little bit for where we are. Uh, to see them come out in their first game against Indianapolis and just blow the doors off the Colts. And really that set the tone for all of 2017. That's what kind of team they were. That, that really stabilized a lot of my values and, and what I think about the NFL because the stuff that I thought made Sean so special as a coach, it was immediately reflected and apparent in the Rams organization, and they had success overnight with it. Uh, so it's, it's been a, quite a job. And one thing he does, Peter, that, that, that's unique. Well, I don't know if it's unique, but he does it really well. He listens to the people around him. And he puts a lot of different people around him. That guy's not afraid to have someone who's smarter than him sitting and being the one at his table talking if that's the case. As you look at the Rams right now, let's transition a little bit into, uh, into this season. As you look at the Rams right now, they have really been a little bit up and down, and it appears now that the 49ers have kind of passed them, uh, certainly record-wise, in the NFC West. As you look at that division, and particularly the Rams right now, what do you see? I see an offense that's that's trying to come together still for the Rams, quite frankly. They they have not put together... Uh, uh, four quarters of high-level football, not by their standard. They haven't yet done that this season. Now, one thing that they have done well, they've had these slow starts, and then they go in at halftime, and I don't know what they do at halftime, but they come out looking like the Rams again. So they find their rhythm within the game, but they have not put together that four quarters of of outstanding football that we've come to know from them. I think it's a testament that they are able to win mostly when they're still playing like this. I think they're going to get better, and as their offensive line, especially their interior O-line, that's what we're talking about here, as those guys gel and, and get more comfortable together, that offense, I, I think, will get back to what we're seeing. But right now, they're a little bit of a work in progress. The other thing is there's a somewhat of a blueprint out on them that was laid last year, quarters coverage, uh, pressure-looking front, six down up front, four back deep. That's what the Patriots did in the Super Bowl, as we know. They've seen a lot of that, and they knew they'd see a lot of that. And it's forced them to adjust a few things in their offense. So they're doing a little bit of different stuff than they've done in past years. Why do you think the 49ers have taken off? And tell me particularly what you think about their defensive front, which seems to come at people in waves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, first of all, maybe I'll ask you this right here. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, uh, maybe two years ago now, you and I had a conversation about Kyle Shanahan, and you said you got to make sure you get to know Kyle Shanahan. You you want to be knowing these young coaches. You got to know Kyle Shanahan. Why did Why did you feel that way about Kyle Shanahan? Well, because you know I, I've known him for a while. I remember going in and doing a story about him in the off season between. RG3's first and second year in Washington, his debacle, that's when the debacle really all began. 
But what I'll never forget about sitting with him is it's almost like, remember when Frank Wright got the coaching job in Indianapolis and Chris Ballard, the general manager, said what really impressed me about Frank, and this sounded just almost nonsensical until you thought about it. But he said, what really impressed me about Frank Reich is he never asked me one question about Andrew Luck's health and when will he be ready and what should we expect and all that. And I said, why is that impressive? And I remember asking Chris Ballard, why is that impressive? And he said, because he knows he's going to win even if he doesn't have Andrew Luck. And we all sort of laughed at that. And everybody thought, well... That's how bad Frank Reich wants to be a head coach. He'll play with the janitor as the as the quarterback if that means that you'll give him his coaching job. But it really wasn't that. It was this sort of innate faith in his own ability. And when I got to know Kyle Shanahan a little bit, I thought to myself, this little so-and-so is so cocky about his own ability and about his own Uh, knowledge of football that it kind of reminded me of his dad only his dad is very friendly and bubbly and cool and Kyle Shanahan is a little bit of a of a pissy guy you know he's a he's a he's a tough guy and he really doesn't care whether you like him or not you know he just he's gonna do the job and he's gonna win and I just thought and I don't know whether I talked to you after he got the job with the 49ers or before, but in in doing a couple of longer things with the 49ers, I just saw a guy who reminded me of John Nash in A Beautiful Mind. And mm-hmm. for those who haven't seen the movie, it's about an incredibly precocious, smarter-than-everybody-in-the-room guy who doesn't brag about how smart he is. He just goes out and dominates what he does. And I just always had the feeling if he had enough time and you got him a quarterback that Kyle Shanahan was going to figure it out. So that's a long answer, but you asked, so I answered. Well, and so here you're going to love this part then. After you told me you get to know Kyle Shanahan, I, I we did connect a little bit at the Combine, and long story short, I went and visited him at his office in Santa Clara, and it was it was just him and me talking football, so it wasn't anything on the record. But one thing I can share, he has a big whiteboard, and it's one of the walls is just all whiteboard, so he can draw plays on it. And Peter, he turned around and he got to talking and turned around to draw what he was talking about. And honest to goodness, he filled the entire wall before he turned around and looked at me again. It was about four to five minutes of just writing on the wall. At one point he got down just flat on the ground so he could write lower on the wall because he ran out of space. And when it was only when he ran out of wall, did he turn around and really look at me again the whole time he was teaching and talking football. So beautiful mind is spot on. He can draw formations, the 11 man formations. He can draw those as fast as I can write my name. I've never seen anybody like him in that sense. And don't you think he's, the kind of guy who sort of like Sean McVay, his brain is just brimming with ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I think his brain naturally goes 
to the second level of things. So that when I was doing that article with, with Sean McVeigh during the middle of our interview, Bill Callahan came into his office and Callahan's eyes were just lit up. I've never seen such glee in a, in a grown man's face. And he was lit up because he discovered that against a certain defensive front, one of their counter runs could cut back through a different gap and it wouldn't be defended. So he found a kind of a new run play wrinkle and he went and explained it to Sean and, and McVeigh instantly figured out the passes that they could build into, into, into that play. So they could run it as a check at the line of scrimmage. And I couldn't believe, I thought, man, is this how NFL plays come together? One guy just spots something. And then the next guy figures out four or five things they can do off of it. Sean McVay's mind naturally goes to what's next and what, how does it build into the bigger picture? I think that's what makes those guys unique. Andy, how are the Seahawks hanging in there? Well, I think there's two things and, and both of them have surprised me. And then so almost to the, the degree that I have to say, I need to, I, I certainly have changed my thoughts on these guys in this situation. Um, one is that their defense is a lot better than I thought it'd be. It's not what it was in the heyday, certainly, uh, but it's playing better than its level of talent suggests it should be playing. And one thing that they're doing, Peter, they're not just the Seahawks style cover three defense anymore. In fact, they, they played that almost every snap a couple of weeks ago against Baltimore. And it looked weird to me because I've gotten so used now to seeing them play man coverage or this year, especially it's been a lot more zone cover two type of zone. They change things up a lot. So they're a pretty high volume defensive scheme. Now they still know how to play cover three when they need to. So that's been one, the expansion of the defense. And the number two is Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson has, he's always had sandlot tendencies. And as you know, Peter, I struggle with that. Sometimes I, I am a, I believe in drop back pocket passing. I learned from McVeigh. That's just the way I see offense. Um, and I think Wilson this year has done a really good job of regulating his sandlot tendencies. He's not leaving as many throws on the field. And honestly, when he goes to these sandlot plays, he's better now than he used to. I mean, they're getting better when Wilson breaks things down. And the guy that's really amazing is Tyler Lockett. That guy's probably the best out of structure receiver in the NFL. So the Seahawks are doing what Wilson does best. I don't think they're asking a ton of him because they still want to be a run based team. And that's a great way to play with a style of quarterback like Russell Wilson. But when they do turn to Wilson, which is still more often than not, he's responded really well. He's having a tremendous season for them. Andy, in our, in our few minutes left, um, I'm going to ask you a question about one other team, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the players who you see, who you love, that the rest of the world maybe doesn't see yet. I always found that talking to you, you would always tell me there were four or five guys who are playing really well that weren't necessarily getting the attention. Um, but I want to, the last team I want to ask you about is the Patriots. They've had a very soft schedule so far, which now in the second half of the season is going to get much tougher starting Sunday night at Baltimore. Are you totally a buyer on the Patriots? And do you believe this defense, the way it's playing now, is going to be able to hold up as sort of a historic defense? 
Well, I think it's I am I'm definitely a buyer. I, I'll be a buyer as long as Bill Belichick's there for sure. I, I I don't think it's a when I watch them, I don't see a historically great defense. I see one that's playing at the highest of levels right now, and they can do a lot of different things. And they have their foundation, which is man coverage, and they have a couple of guys who are, are tremendous players that nobody talks about. High towers one, and then the guy that really gets overlooked is Kyle Van Noy, and those guys what they do in that scheme really texturizes it and diversifies it and they're playing very well right now so I think they're for real I don't know if they're world beaters top to bottom the way I don't know if they're as good as the Bears were a year ago defensively or they're certainly not the 2000 Ravens but they're a tremendous defense there's no question about that Um, Green Bay New Orleans or San Francisco or somebody else Seattle or Minnesota who who comes out of the NFC? What team do you like the most in the NFC? I think at this point, I like the Niners the most. We we we, we probably need to talk about. We got into the Shanahan thing. We didn't talk about Robert Sala and that defense back there. You were going to, and I I, I steered you in a different direction. That defense, will get, uh, Peter. That that defense is playing at almost as high a level as as the Patriots are playing right now. And Sala has expanded their scheme. It's another one of those teams that has a cover three foundation, but they're not just relying on cover three and adding the speed up front with Bosa and D Ford has had a domino effect. That's a tremendous defense. So I think they're a legit seven and zero, And I think they've looked this good on film in terms of their coaching and their approach to the game. They've looked this good for three years now. They just didn't have the players to, to have it capitalized into success, but it's great coaching, meeting great personnel. And we're seeing the results right now. Um, and and this I forgot to ask you: is there uh, is there a Sean McVay on your horizon? For those who don't follow you, um, you probably know more young coaches and coaches in general in the NFL than anybody who covers the NFL. Um, who would be on your sort of short list for teams to look out for this off season? Well, if I were, if I got to run a team and, and had a head coaching spot to fill, the guy I'd want to fill is Matt Eberflus, the Colts defensive coordinator. And I, I'm probably as high on him and, and as confident in him. I, he's, I, I'm not where I was with Sean. I might never need another coach like Sean McVay, but I haven't been as confident in a coach since McVay when I'm talking about Eberflus here. He does an outstanding job schematically, the way he's taught his players and the speed with which they play and the way they've been able to expand their scheme with so many young guys and still play fast. And then just knowing Eberflus, I've, I've spent a lot of time with him as well. And then also other Colt players, those guys talk about him in the highest of terms. So he's a defensive coach. He's not the youngest guy. He's probably mid-40s. Uh, he he will be a tremendous head coach for whoever hires him. Interesting. Andy, before we uh, take off, I just am, am curious, as I said, about the players who you really like right now in the NFL as we are at the midpoint of the 2019 season. Uh, because I know that you always have very, very strong opinions and it doesn't care and, and you don't care uh, what the uh, common wisdom is about players. Give me three or four guys, if you can, right now who who you think are playing great, uh, who America doesn't know well. 
Sure. And now I I knew I knew we were going to do something along these lines, so I put some thought into this. I've got all linebackers. Does that make it more or less interesting if I answer all linebackers for you? <laughs> it's whatever whatever it is you <laughs> think is fine with me. All right. I think Tremaine Edmonds in Buffalo is we knew the talent was top level. Now we're seeing his football awareness continue to sharpen and blossom. And Sean McDermott's one of the best defensive coaches in the NFL. You see that in how fast his guys play. I think Edmonds illustrates that the most. So he's one that, that a guy who's playing at an enormously high level. Two other linebackers that no one's talking about that I, if I were voting today, would would probably be, come down to these two guys for first team all pro. It's Eric Kendricks in Minnesota and Quan Alexander in San Francisco. Kendricks in the Viking scheme is as good in that scheme as any linebacker is in his respective team's system right now. He is Kendricks has that thing mastered. He's outstanding in coverage. He knows where to go and run defense. He plays at a fast level. He has a sense for the ball. And, and then Quan Alexander... Peter, I think as much as I love Bosa, and I think the conversation that Richard Sherman sparked about Bosa, and you you touched on this a lot this week, about whether Bosa is an MVP defensive candidate, and I think it's a legitimate conversation. If I had to name an MVP on that defense, so I'd name Alexander right now. The speed that he is in, has influxed into the middle of their defense with, with pursuit angles and then coverage range and, and how that can help their secondary, I, I don't think there's a faster linebacker in football right now. It's amazing because he's in kind of a, not a new system, but he's in a new surrounding this year. You have any other uh, – those are really good. Those are three good ones. You have a couple more who you like that we don't know? Well, people know Kyle Van Noy, but they don't. They, they talk about Gilmore, who's I think also outstanding, the best corner in the league right now. But Van Noy, I think, is every bit as important to that system as Gilmore. And I know guys, coaches that have had to deal with that Patriots defense that feel the same way. And Van Noy was the most destructive player in the Super Bowl a year ago, and he's only picked up on that from from where he left off. Uh, and to go offense. Do people talk about Chris Carson, Peter, the, the Seahawks running? I don't always listen to all this stuff as much. Is he a known guy? <laughs> I think he's a known guy, but not not all that well-known, no. Chris Carson gets more yards after contact than just about anyone in the NFL. He can run inside. He can run outside. Russell Wilson's the most valuable player in that offense because of the nature of the, of the position and then some of the extra stuff he can do out of structure. But I, you could make the argument that although Wilson's the most valuable, the offense runs through Chris Carson. That's a run-first offense, and Carson's become a really good shotgun runner, which is what that offense is built on. I'll end with this. Who's the best quarterback in the NFL right now? Um, I mean, if, if he's healthy, the most talented quarterback is Patrick Mahomes. But I don't see how we can get off the Tom Brady thing yet. What Every year it seems like we forget to name Brady as number one until we get into January and we realize he's going to win the Super Bowl again. I don't understand that. Well, I think everybody's always looking for the new shiny object and especially – when healthy Patrick Mahomes, let's say Patrick Mahomes plays the next 15 years and he's healthy and there's obviously no guarantee, but Tom Brady essentially uh, has played most of 19 years, all except one year. He's played most of the last 19 years and he's won every year. And now you can, 
we can get into the argument of what came first, the chicken or the egg. Who, what's the biggest reason is it for the Patriots' success, Belichick or Brady? I mean, to me, it's like Walsh or Montana. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you need both. And, uh, and so, but, but, but having said all that, I do think that one of the things that sometimes we, we get so enamored with the big, big numbers uh, and we forget about what actually wins in football, and that is a team moving the chains. And if you have a great defense, as New England does, you know, as somebody there told me uh, earlier this year, uh, I don't mind basically everybody looking at our team and saying, man, you stink on offense. It's all defense. That's okay. We've been great on offense for whatever, 20 years. So maybe it's about time that the defense is, is the best far and away in football and they win the games. What's so wrong about that? And I'll take my chances with Tom Brady throwing the ball to a bunch of schmoes and, uh, <laughs> and, and know that if there's a very big game to be played and he has protection, give me Brady and the schmoes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's to kind of bring it all full circle because we talked Russell Wilson earlier in this show and I'm enamored with Pat Mahomes and and Rodgers is always great. The most dominant quarterback still of his era and of the recent years is probably the least mobile quarterback in the NFL and the guy that makes the fewest plays out of structure, maybe of any full-time starter that we've seen. So it's, it's the game has changed. It's, it's more fluid for these playmaking QBs, but that doesn't mean the game, the game has expanded. I don't know if it's outright changed because the statue S pocket pass are still the one that's winning the Super Bowl every year. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a really, really good point. And look, I think if he stays healthy, I think Patrick Mahomes will win three of them because he is just such an incredible force of nature. But, you know, the other thing I like, Andy, and I don't I, – I, I like players, and, I, and we can talk about Pat, uh, Patrick Mahomes, but and, – and I've uh, never uh, – I'm, I'm sure for as long as he plays, I'll – I'll have great admiration for him. But there's something, too, about the sheer force of will that Deshaun Watson has. And that play he made on Sunday, and as we record this uh, on Monday, exiting week eight, that play he made on Sunday where, you know, they're behind Oakland, they've been behind the whole game, and he gets kicked in the face, almost sacked twice, kicked in the face. His left eye is closed shut, and he adjusts his helmet as he's getting out of there so he can see out of his right eye. And he focuses, and he sees his tight end about 18 yards away, and he just throws it up there, and then he falls to the ground and says, hope my eyeball is okay. And I, and I asked him about it, and I, I was so impressed with you know with what he said and i'm going to tell you exactly what he said okay to me um i i'll read you the quote when i when i said to him you know did you think that uh, you were going to get sacked you were sacked by by two guys on that play and he said i felt even when they did grab me i'd have the athleticism to get out somehow i didn't care what was behind me 
I didn't care what was in front of me. I was going to make something happen. And I read that, or I heard that, and I'm just reading it right now. And, and as I wrote in my column, read those last three sentences from Watson. Isn't that what you want from your quarterback? Basically, basically I'm going to make something happen. And that's one of the things about quarterback play. That's the way Brady is. That's the way. And, and look, I'm not saying you have to have this uh, bulletproof attitude and, and uh, I'm better than everybody else and I'm going to find a way, but I really do think it helps. Absolutely. And to credit Watson as well, to kind of compare him to Brady in this sense, guys that have that attitude and what he said specifically, the challenge they face when they get in the NFL is relying too much on that. I'm going to make something happen. I'm going to, I'll just get it figured out. I'm going to break down the play. And Watson has really learned to run that offense the way it's designed to be run. And he calls upon his playmaking magic only when he has to. Sometimes he'll get a little antsy and do it a little too much and they get uneven. But for the most part, he's become a really disciplined quarterback, I think a smart quarterback, who's using his playmaking prowess uh, responsibly. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Andy, as you know, and we have done it on several occasions, we could talk all day. And maybe one day we'll have the Peter King, Andy Benoit all day podcast, but <laughs> that would be a blast. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, you got it. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate you a lot. You know, my thanks to Andy Benoit for all that time. And one last thing I'm going to pose to you, please <laughs> later in the week, Go to NBCSports.com. You'll also see this on our NBC Sports YouTube channel. I went down today, Tuesday, as I record this, late on Tuesday evening. I went to Annapolis, Maryland, to one of the coolest spots I've been to in a while. The Belichick Collection. No, it's not handbags. No, it's not purses. It's not, it's not, it's not nice women's shoes. It's the Belichick Collection. It is, it is more than 400 books dating back a century on football that Bill Belichick and his late father, Steve, had collected over the years, and they donated to the Naval Academy. And we just thought that in a week that the New England Patriots are going to be playing their first game in a while in Baltimore, let's go look at the impact that Bill Belichick has had on a community very close to Baltimore, the impact that Bill and his late father, Steve, have had on Annapolis, Maryland, and the U.S. Naval Academy. I think you're going to like it. So that's it for this week. Thanks a lot for listening. Hope you enjoy it. And remember, Monday morning, crack of dawn, with me sounding like a punch-drunk sailor, please listen to the mini-pod the Football Morning in America mini podcast where I talk about all the events of Week 9. Thanks a lot for listening.